Everything comes into being through the Logos. Nothing that comes into being does so without the Logos. This is the foundational idea of science which it inherited from Greek philosophy, namely that there is a rational principle underlying everything that happens and how everything comes to be. Principles that our reason can comprehend and describe. The Greeks call this the Logos. And in the specific context of modern science is what we may call the laws of nature. Doesn't this mean then that the universe has no need of God, no need of a creator to bring things into being, any more than it needs, say, the flying spaghetti monster? That would depend on what we mean by God. Because the quote about the Logos in the beginning is from the Bible, from the opening lines of the Gospel of John. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks? a series that explores important ideas in Christianity. For the skeptics who want to understand religious viewpoints, the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I'm Paul Sumajung, and this is our fourth episode, What Do You Mean God Created the World? Part 1, God, Science, the Universe, and the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Let's start with the flying spaghetti monster, an invisible, undetectable pasta entity that created the universe according to pastafarianism, which is a religion for pirates who I guess love pasta. Yes, it's a spoof. It's a satirical critique of the idea of God, at least the one that's held by the creationists and the proponents of intelligent design. It began as an open letter to protest a school board decision to teach intelligent design in science classes as an alternative to evolution. The letter basically went, if the creation story in the Bible can be taught as scientific truth, then why not the story of the flying spaghetti monster creating the world in a drunken stupor? It would at least be funnier. Now, this internet meme raises a critical question. Namely, is there a conflict between science and religion? Except that that's an ill-defined question, is too broad for one thing, and narrowing it down to Christianity doesn't help either, since this question has largely been about science and Christianity to begin with. And that's only because modern science historically developed in the Christian West, so that that's where this question was asked for nearly 200 years. Then what about whether science conflicts with the belief in God? That's still too broad? I've taught entire university courses pretty much dealing with that question alone. So let's focus that question to what the flying spaghetti monster directly spoofs. The belief that God created the world. Is there a conflict between science and that belief? Well, there are two layers to that question. First is, is science incompatible with the belief that God created the universe? That is, does science somehow disprove that belief by, for example, conflicting with the creation account in the Bible? And the answer is, that depends. It'd be incompatible, for example, with a particular way you would interpret that creation account told in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. That the universe was created in literal six days with different living species appearing simultaneously rather than through the long process of evolution. It's this interpretation that the flying spaghetti monster parodies, after all. But the Christian reading of this creation account is very diverse and complex. 
Creationism as we know it didn't even exist until the 20th century. And more than 1600 years ago, St. Augustine, one of the most revered Christian theologians in history, pointed out that creation couldn't have happened in six 24-hour days. God didn't create the sun, moon, or the stars until the fourth day in the Genesis account, and you can't have 24-hour days without them. Moreover, he pointed out that God created time itself. And that means the description of God creating the world, including how God created time, may not be a description of what God was doing inside time or even what happened in which chronological order, which also requires time to be there in the first place. We'll have to explore the Genesis creation account at some other episode though. For now, all this is to say that understanding the Jewish and the Christian story of creation is not as simple as it may seem, let alone parody. So, there's a good reason why there are many scientists who are Christians and why they don't see a conflict between their scientific view of the universe and their belief in God who created all things. And that's because there are far too many ways to understand Christian beliefs in a way that's compatible with science. At least as many as there are ways to make them incompatible. And that's basically why historians of science and religion nowadays largely agree that the relation between Christianity and science cannot simply be described as conflict. Rather, their relationship is complex. For those of you who's curious, look up the impact of John Brooks' work, Science and Religion, on current historical studies. Anyway, if Christians don't have to hold on to views that the Flying Spaghetti Monster parodies, does that mean all is well between science and the Christian belief in God? Not quite. I told you there are two layers to this question. Take Francis Collins, a renowned geneticist and physician who headed the Human Genome Project and now heads the National Institutes of Health. He's an evolutionist and a devout Christian. And he wrote on how Christianity is compatible with science and how you can integrate both into your worldview. But some atheists responded that it is not enough that the Christian belief in God is compatible with science. It should be supported by it. That is, there should be scientific evidence for the belief that an entity like God exists. Otherwise, you're only saying science cannot disprove God, but can't the same thing be said of the flying spaghetti monster? Well, can it? Let's use a slightly less exotic example as a stand-in for our monster, the Russell's teapot, named after Bertrand Russell, a philosopher who came up with it. Suppose I say, there's a teapot orbiting the sun somewhere between the Earth and Mars. Now, we have no evidence that this teapot exists, but we have no evidence against it either. You can't prove that it does not exist. Does that mean that you should believe me? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. That's because the burden of proof is on the person making the assertion, not the one disbelieving it. What that means is, if you believe something, like a teapot in space or the flying spaghetti monster, I don't need to have any evidence against your belief to say you are wrong. But you need to have evidence for your belief to say you are right. Otherwise, we could believe anything that we can't prove but also cannot disprove. And then, we would soon be swarmed by spacefaring teapots or be swallowed up in the noodly tendrils of the spaghetti god. And so Russell's suggestion is, even if there's nothing to disprove God, 
We should not believe in God because it would be like believing in a teapot. However, there are problems with this analogy. The most obvious being that he's wrong to say that we have no evidence against this teapot. We do. In fact, the very reason we find the belief in the space teapot ridiculous is because we already know a lot of things about the world which contradict that belief. For example, we know what a teapot is. How it's made, its structure, composition, and fragility. And we know enough about space and things in it that we know teapots don't just spontaneously form in space. That means the only way for a teapot to orbit the sun is for us humans to make it and put it there. And we also know the technological requirement to do such a thing and that if anyone attempted it, the entire world would notice. So we disbelieve Russell's teapot from the get-go, not simply because he gave us no evidence for it, but because we already have a lot of evidence against it. We disbelieve his teapot because it is incompatible with what we know to be true. Whereas, say, Francis Collins' Christian understanding of God is compatible. That's something even his opponents seem to agree on. Our beliefs don't exist in a vacuum. It's placed within a large network of other things we believe through science, history, experience, and others. So for a belief to be compatible with the rest of the very large body of what we know is no small thing. But there is something noteworthy to the atheist objection that science should support the belief in God. And it's this. So granted that the idea of God is not at all like the Russell's teapot, do we still really need that idea? That is, hasn't science made the belief in an entity that created the universe unneeded, redundant? Consider how science undermined our faith in God. It did so by taking away all the roles God had as a creator. For example, we thought that God was the one that made the marvelous structures of each living thing. But now we know it was evolution, or the laws of nature that dictate how life evolved. We thought that God was the one that directed the order and the movements of the stars in the sky. But now we know it's laws of physics, of gravity and such. We thought that God was the one that started everything. But now we know the universe began from the Big Bang, and scientists hope to figure out the ultimate laws of nature behind that event too. And so, this line of thinking goes, there's no longer any need for an entity like God, since all the roles this entity had actually belong to nature and its laws. Now the first episode should have answered the basic objection about God having no role in what happens in nature. After all, it's titled, Why We Need to Stop Trying to Find God a Job. So hopefully, you listened to it already. But one thing we can say here from that episode is this. If he thinks science made the belief in God unneeded, I'd ask first if he really understand the idea of God specifically the idea that God created the universe. How so? Well, to explore what I mean, we first need to take a brief detour to the historical roots of science. Now, the very term scientist didn't even exist until 1833 when Reverend Dr. William Ewell coined it to describe what he was doing when he worked on mechanics, physics, geology, and astronomy. Yes, he was a reverend too, a Christian theologian, and a historian, and a poet. Whew. Anyway, before this, people we now call scientists thought of themselves as a philosopher, or if ambitious, a theologian. Isaac Newton wrote on theology, 
and his seminal work on physics was originally titled Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Then, how did philosophy become science? Now, that's far too big a story to tell here, but let me pick up one key thread of it, a central idea that science inherited from philosophy. So, centuries before Jesus was born, the ancient Greek philosophers developed a very important idea. Now, they weren't alone. Philosophers of other cultures, the Indians and the Chinese, for example, had a similar idea. And you can probably find older versions of this idea basically everywhere. But we are talking about the Greek version that was most directly passed down to modern science. And it was this. Rational principle governs how everything happens and how everything comes to be. And thus, everything together forms the cosmos. Why? Because cosmos means order in Greek. Furthermore, we humans can use our reason to understand this principle and our language to describe it. So Heraclitus, one of their earliest philosophers, called this principle of order logos, which in Greek means reason, discourse, or speech. Why did he name it logos? The idea here was that our human logos, our thoughts, discourse, and speech about reality is capable of matching the form of the principle of all existence, the logos of reality itself. Let's call it the cosmic logos. So the ideal of philosophy, you could say, is to use our reason to shape our human logos into the form of the cosmic logos. And this, by the way, is where the root idea of our words information and being informed comes from. Now, the usage of the term changed from philosopher to philosopher. Plato and Aristotle called the rational principle forms or ideas. The Stoics and the Neoplatonists returned to the term logos, but the content of the idea remained the same. Rational principle underlying everything and every happening, the cosmic logos, or the logos of reality, which we can learn, understand, and describe through our reason and language, our human logos. Now, I should also briefly mention how the word universe came about too. Since through the logos, everything together formed a unified whole, everything was not only the cosmos, meaning order, remember, it was also the universe. That word comes from Latin. The word unus, meaning one, and versus, meaning toward. So everything points toward the one. And upon this set of ideas in philosophy, science was founded. Now, science has revolutionized our methods, and its precision and predictiveness is now unmatched. But it is still about our logos matching the form of the logos of reality. Even the names of our scientific disciplines remind us of this. Cosmology, from the words cosmos and logos. So, the logos of the cosmos. Biology, logos of life. Anthropology, logos of man. Psychology, logos of the mind. Now what's really interesting is, when the Jewish and the Christian thinkers encountered this idea from Greek philosophy, they didn't then propose another entity in addition to the Logos. They didn't say, no, God created all things, not this Logos. Nor did they say, some things came to be through the Logos and God created the rest. Instead, the Gospel of John in the New Testament Bible opens with this. In the beginning was the Logos. Now in the English translation, Logos was simply translated as word. So I'm restoring the original term so that we can all hear it. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. 
He, that is the Logos, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through the Logos, and there is nothing that came into being without Him. Now St. Augustine, remember him, picked up on what this meant. He wrote in the seventh book of his Confessions that when he read the philosophers, the Platonists in this case, they were telling him what the opening of the Gospel of John said, though with different words. And this idea of the Logos of God is central to the Christian understanding of what it means to say God created all things. After all, if our human reason can understand the principle that structures all of reality, and if our language can describe it, that is, if our human logos can be shaped into the form of the cosmic logos, then that means reality in a significant way is like a rational language, a discourse, a speech, bringing us to the opening of Genesis where God speaks and the world comes into being. And this is not really an idea that can be replaced or made unneeded in any way by science. Whether it's evolution or chemical bonds or gravity or quantum fluctuation or the Big Bang or the multiverse, science is still describing the logos, the rational principle, the laws of nature that govern how everything comes to be, the principle that our human reason and language can connect to. It is still about what the Gospel of John calls the Logos of God, through which all things come into being, what Christianity means when it says God created the world. We could even say that this kind of belief in God is supported by science, not in the sense that it is confirmed by any one scientific theory, but in the sense that it's a different way of describing everything that science does. Or to quote Albert Einstein, shortened here for clarity, the fact that the world is comprehensible is a miracle. A conviction akin to religious feeling of the rationality of the world lies behind all scientific work of a higher order. This firm belief, a belief bound up with deep feeling, represents my conception of God. But wait, Einstein said he didn't believe in God who appears in the Bible. And this is why people have a hard time categorizing him as an atheist or a theist. My answer is, the idea of God that Einstein was fully and fervently on board with, he said he has religious reverence for it, is what the Gospel of John called the Logos of God. What Einstein did not believe is that this God is personal. Remember how I suggested in the first episode that the disagreement between the atheist and the theist is not really about believing an additional entity, but more about how to relate to reality as who or a what. Let's look at another famous scientist who did identify himself as an atheist. Stephen Hawking wrote in the brief history of time that if we discover a complete theory on why we and the universe exist, we would, quote, know the mind of God. He meant that as a metaphor, though for Christianity, that's precisely what it would be. Because to know the mind of God isn't about knowing the thoughts of some very powerful yet alien entity in some alternate reality as Hawking seems to assume. It is knowing the logos of reality. Now Hawking seems to vaguely become aware of this later on. So in 2010, in the Grand Design, he noted that one can think of God as the embodiment of the ultimate laws of nature. But his challenge was that the idea of God needs more. And he's right about that. So he wrote, the real crunch comes with a second question. Are there miracles, exception to the laws? And of course, he argues that there aren't. 
Now, Hawking's definition indicates that he doesn't really understand the idea of miracles, but that's another topic. All this is to say that the Christian belief that God created the universe is equivalent to the philosophical idea upon which all science is founded. The idea that everything comes into being through the Logos, which is proclaimed in the Gospel of John with these words, all things were created through the Logos. That is, as far as science is concerned. And that qualification is important, because of course none of this really settles the debate. Einstein and even Hawking is on board with the Logos, which the Christian Gospels explicitly call God. But is that enough? After all, though the Gospel of John says the Logos was God, the Gospel also calls the Logos Him, not it, but Him. God is personal. So we return to the question we ended with in the first episode. How do we know whether reality is, God is, personal? And is that a question that science can or should answer? And if so, how? Wait though, we may be getting ahead of ourselves. We need to first ask, what does it even mean to say that God is personal? Now the Gospel of John seems to give us a clue when it declares, The Logos became a human being and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, and no one can see God the Father except through him. However, we will have to explore that in another episode. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode, Why So Many Christianities? Will the Real One Stand Up? Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow, and share. Until then, I will be waiting here. What's that? Pastafarians aren't pirates who love pasta? That's as ridiculous as Christians who don't follow the teachings of Jesus.